You know, Casting Crowns has been around for a while. A lot of cool songs they've had out over the years, but one of their songs was titled Slow Fade. You guys know that song? Slow Fade. And the chorus of the song goes like this. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Here's what I know to be true about each and every one of us in this room today. All of us sitting here are subject to fade. All of us are subject to drift. All of us sitting in this room are subject to kind of slip away. And we're all subject to kind of lose that North Star and lose our compass and lose our direction in life. All of us are subject to that. Here's the reason I think so. Sin seems so attractive and satisfying in the moment. Sin. Look at how much fun we could have. Nobody will ever know. You won't get caught. Everybody else is doing it. God is a forgiving God. You ever hear those lies that Satan throws at you when he Uh, lures you to go somewhere you know you shouldn't go. Here's what I've concluded about sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is an old archery term uh, that means to miss the mark. Here's what I know about sin, and I want you to think about it. Sin always fascinates. The Bible says that Satan appears as an angel of light. So when you think about sin, it's always going to have this lure, this enticement to it. But sin is fascinating initially. Even the Bible says that sin is fun for a season, for a moment. But after sin fascinates and we start to gravitate towards sin, sin then starts to assassinate our lives. Sin begins to get a grip inside of us and inside of our hearts and minds, and it starts to assassinate us. And after sin has fascinated and assassinated, it starts to dominate our lives. Sin becomes the reign and rule force in our journey, and before you know it, The fascination that's led to assassination, that's led to domination, then leads to incredible deterioration, and it destroys who we are. Sin. We're born into the world dead in our sins. Based on Ephesians 2, we're all born into the world with a corrupt nature at the very core of who we are, the center of our heart. When we're born, Jeremiah would say, the heart is deceitful. And wicked and sick. Who can understand it? So here's what we know. Sin is deceitful. It entices us. It is like a a, a lure that a fisherman would use to entice the fish. Satan is really cunning when it comes to the different traps he'll throw in front of us. He knows where we're weak. And all of us have what I call variable temptation. There's certain things that will take you down that maybe won't take the next person down, but all of us have our weaknesses. Sin entices us. It's, it's real for each and every one of us as we do life today. Sin is not only deceitful, it's destructive. And I want you to get this. Sin erodes the soul. 
Sin will make people lose their minds in the way they think. Sin will cause people to think thoughts and do things they've never done before when they get saturated and marinated in sin. It's a reality for all of us. None of us are above it. Sin will be discovered. The scripture says your sin will find you out. Eventually, you will be exposed. It may be here or it may be later, but eventually, sin gets exposed. It will be discovered. So David writes Psalm 51 as a heart cry to this holy God after he has royally jacked it up. He has violated God. He has dishonored God. He has refused to submit to God in his life. He's got to a place in his life where he's negotiated what he's willing to stand for and against, and he compromises. And so even in Psalm 51.1, and we're going to break this entire psalm down over the next four weeks, he goes, have mercy on me. Mercy, the kindness and compassion of God that would be extended to a person living in misery and pain and sin and wickedness. God, please have mercy on me. Oh God, do it according to your unfailing love. David knows what he's done. We're going to break it down. But he goes, God, when I look at your unfailing love, the only chance I've got of being redeemed, restored, rescued is you. He goes on to say, because of your great compassion, blot out my sin. So when you read Psalm 51, and I would really highly encourage you to, to comb through it over the next weeks. That's where we're going to be. But it's a, it's a cry of brokenness. It's a cry of confession and repentance and getting right with God. But it's written, it's written years after a scenario went down that's found in 2 Samuel 11. Now, I want you to get this. David was uh, Israel's second king. God had anointed a guy by the name of Saul. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome, good-looking guy. But Saul had negotiated and compromised the things of God, and God removes his hand off of Saul's life. David is a little red-headed, redneck shepherd boy, played with slingshots. I mean, come on. And all of a sudden, God raises up the eighth son in his family tree, and all of a sudden puts an anointing on him, and David becomes king. Now, 2 Samuel 11 says this. Then it happened, verse 1. Then it happened. It happened in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle with their armies that David sent Joab and the armies with him. Joab was David's bloodthirsty nephew. He was a general in David's army, and Joab loved to fight, and he loved to conquer, and Joab was all about tension and conflict. Study the life of Joab. Joab ends up having a lot of tension, even with one of David's sons, Absalom. Joab was a bloodthirsty little general, and David stayed at home, the scripture says. David sent Joab and the servants, but he stayed at home. Verse 2. When evening came, David arose. I've got all these words underlined in my notes. David stayed. David arose. David walked on the roof. David saw a woman bathing. It was very beautiful in appearance. David sent. David inquired. They came back and said, David, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. But David's the king. 
David thinks I can do whatever I want to do. David sent messengers. Go get that girl and bring her back over here. Where's Uriah? Uriah's where he's supposed to be. He's out with the army. He's out doing battle. David's at home. David's looking next door. David's probably 20 to 30 years, her elder. And David is absolutely fascinated. I don't think this is the first time he had seen that chick. I think he had seen her there before. I think he had entertained the thought that when the time would present itself, if I could hook up with her, that would be a great score for me. And he waits and he waits and he forfeits being where he's supposed to be. He brings Bathsheba in. The Bible says they had relations. He lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. Then it happened. Now listen to me. It happened with a king. Acts would say David is a man after God's own heart. It happened with a man that had written the majority of what we have as the Psalms today. A man that was anointed by God, appointed by God, that leaked with the wisdom of God. But then it happened. It's a slow fade. It's a compromise. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says that the king shall not multiply with wives, lest his heart be turned from God. David, by the time he hooks up with the Bathsheba, there's already about five wives in his portfolio. Sin is a slow fade. It's a compromise. It's a negotiating of the little things that we start opening the door to. It's a slow fade. She goes, David, I'm pregnant. So David does what all other godly men do. David owned his stuff, but he didn't. David said, wow. Tell you what. He sends some of his messengers back out to the army, and he says, do me a favor, guys. Tell Uriah I need to see him. How we love to cover our mess. How we love to cover and suppress our junk. How we love to hide and deceive and play the game with our stuff. So he brings Uriah off the battlefield and he gets Uriah home and he says, Uriah, tell you what, dude, I like you. You're an awesome man. And he gives Uriah some of his favorite wines and he gets Uriah somewhat buzzed or semi hammered. And he's thinking, man, now I've got him in a place where he'll want to go home. And he goes, go home and be with your wife. And He goes, how can I do that when all the other army is out doing battle? And he refused to do it. And David played a couple of cards and Uriah wouldn't fall for it because if he goes home and sleeps with his wife and now she says, I've conceived, he can now hide it, cover it, and he can blame the game on Uriah, but he couldn't. So David writes a letter, he folds it up, he puts it in an envelope and he gives it to Uriah and he says, take this letter to Joab. And so Uriah takes his own death orders in his innocence to Joab, the bloodthirsty nephew general of David. He reads the letter and it says, engage in battle, put Uriah in the front lines. And when the battle's intensified, withdraw the troops and allow them to kill Uriah. Now, when David looked next door and started fantasizing about the what ifs i'm sure david was not thinking i want to have uriah 
kill. But there's a progression of deterioration when it comes to sin. And that's what we deal with in this story. Then it happened. Now, teenagers and adult alike, listen to me. In the last year, I've been dealing with a situation of a well-known ministry leader. And this is a very true story. I'll use the name Joe to protect the innocence of it. And I'll change the city for the sake of the story. But I go down to Macon and I meet with Joe and his ministry team because the previous day I'd had a phone conversation with Joe and the conversation was very brutal and very in-depth and very twisted. He had royally jacked it up. This guy had traveled for 20 years around the world spreading the good news of the gospel, making the name of Christ known. But then it happened and it can happen to all of us because it's a slow fade. But I remember asking Joe, are you in an adulterous relationship with so-and-so? He goes, I have been. And I said, for how long? He said, for 10 months. I said, how did it start? Well, she sent me a friend request. Come on, this is where it jacks up for a lot of guys and gals. And I responded to the friend request and then we started following each other on Twitter and then we started following each other on Instagram. And then we exchanged phone numbers and then we started texting and then we started sexting and then we went to FaceTime with nude conversations. And then two weeks later, the sexual immorality started for 10 months yeah does your wife know yeah then it happened so I'm looking at this guy and I'm talking to him this previous day and then I go down and meet with him and his entire ministry team and he's got to share all this stuff and so in the conversation I said Joe 10 months adulterous relationship Is there any other misuse or sexual abuse or sexual misconduct in your portfolio? What else has happened with you? And then it was like Paul Harvey, page two and page three and page four. He said, you know, six years ago, I started looking at just soft porn. And, you know, I I concluded that, you know, it was just a struggle, but it wasn't hurting anybody. And so I started entertaining soft porn and then it went to heavier porn and that lasted about eight months and then the thrill of that was not strong enough and so I started going to massage parlors you're a Christian leader you travel around the world you talk about the glory of God then it happened so I stayed with the massage parlor scene for about a year Then I started the escort service, and then I played the escort game, but then that wasn't enough, and so, listen, 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 inside of each and every one of us, because of the disease of sin, there is something aroused inside of us for the excitement for the forbidden. The excitement for the forbidden. And then he says, yes, entered into this relationship, whatever. 
The other guys, when we meet, they weep their eyes out. We knew something was going on, but we didn't know what. They knew something was going on with David. Then it happened. Listen, listen. I want to speak to my teenage group. Let me tell you what happens. We compromise, right? Just like David did, violating, multiplying with great armies, multiplying in wives. We conclude everybody else is doing it. I won't get caught. God is a forgiving God. I can get by with it. And so all of a sudden, in this generation of our teenagers, I could not imagine being 14, 16, 18 years old and having the technology and the devices and all of this stuff on an iPad, iPhone, the secretive stuff that goes on, all of these porn internets, all this stuff. Here's what happens. There is a app you can download called Snapchat. To me, it's one of the most lethal ones out there. There was a congressman by the name of Anthony Weiner. He, he was inappropriate. He was in sexual sin and morality, and he had all this text exchange and all this different dialogue going on. Congressman, listen to this. Nick and I were reading this. The founders of Snapchat said, this congressman gets busted, and he makes the statement, I wish there was a way that all your stuff wouldn't just linger on the Internet forever. So Snapchat says, hey, man, let's do this. We can create an app and we can create the technology that something can be sent. It it lingers for eight seconds after you look at it, and then it dissipates and there's no way to trace it. We can create this opportunity for vile texting and sexting and all this kind of stuff, but it will dissipate. Nobody can track it. There's software right now called TeenSafe. Software, much like years ago, I downloaded Triple X Church for me. Triple X Church is a Christian group, and what they did is they created a software, Covenant Eyes, others have this stuff, and what would happen is whatever website I got on, Barb and two other people would always get a copy because I said I want to stay accountable and I want you to know what I'm looking at. So TeenSafe creates this You can drop it on, and your kids won't know it's on your phone or on your iPad, but you can look and see where they've been. Snapchat comes up with a way that they cannot be detected. Sin, it's a slow fade when you say, my parents will never know. I can drop that app on my phone. And when they say, what apps have you got on your phone? Can I see your phone? I can delete that app. And they'll never see it's there. Then I can go back into the store and reinstate that app, put my name and password, and I can play this secretive game. And what you're doing is you're compromising and you're opening the door for destruction. You know, I struggle with alcohol and some drug-related stuff, Tim, but when God saved me, I got clean. And all of a sudden, I was doing well. But I had a little injury and I had some pain and and I went to this doctor and let me tell you what happened. I, I, I started taking this pain med stuff and before I knew it, I was waking up at two in the morning and six in the morning 
When can I have my next one? And the, the dosage I was on was not enough, so I increased that. I, I didn't start out to be a pill addict, an alcoholic, or a drunk. I just had some pain I was trying to medicate and sedate and deal with. And before I knew it, I was taking more and I was taking more. And then I didn't have a prescription. And all of a sudden, I met a dude that said that heroin is the same as what you're on. It's a narcotic that you're on. And I never intended to shoot up. I, I promise you I didn't. But it did. Man, I'm telling you right now, I was so stressed out. I, I, I didn't want to get on that meth. And, but when I did, man, it was kind of a speed high. And then all of a sudden, I was hooked. And then I couldn't find that. So I went to the package store and I, I got those three bottles of wine and I got those four bottles of vodka. And I'm not drinking really intentionally, Tim. I didn't want to get drunk and hammered, but I, I had to use something to sedate me. Then it happened. Come on. And I'm telling you, man, all of us sitting here, if we're not careful, you just crack that door open. And Satan will get a stronghold and a grip in your life. David, what what happened? Two things. Be where you're supposed to be. David, it was the time of year the kings go out to battle. You stayed at home. When do guys and gals get in trouble? When they lie about their location? Man, I'm going on this business trip. Let me tell you, I've got this business meeting set up. No, you're, you're clubbing it. You're playing the game. You're, you're lying about where you're at. And then do what you're supposed to do. David, you were supposed to be out as a leader. Leaders lead, David. Leaders don't lust. Leaders don't rape. David, leaders lead. And he violated his assignment. Let me, let me tell you when it happens for you and I. And it's so easy for you and I to fall into it. It's so easy for pastors and ministry leaders to fall into it. Because we start to conclude this. The rules apply to everyone else but. You, you, you see, what you're saying applies to everybody else. But it doesn't apply to me. I've got money and I've got fame and I've got notoriety and I've got opportunity and I'm above the law. I don't have to drive the speed limit. Or even another twisted part, it happens when we conclude that would never happen to me. It can happen to us. So the soberness of 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 12, Psalm 51 is before the glory and holiness of God. What, what, what are we doing? 2 Samuel 12. A year goes by, a full year. So David is taking Bathsheba in, and she eventually gets pregnant again and has Solomon, and Uriah's dead, and the family is disrupted, and Eliam, her dad, is upset, and not only is her dad upset, but her grandfather, Ahithophel, becomes a bitter, ruined man. All this junk starts happening. Read it, read it. 
chapter 12, then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And he says, uh, David, there were two men in a city. One was rich and one was poor. And, and, and David, these two men in this city, here's what happened. This traveler came to town. And this traveler came to town and connected with this rich man. And the rich man concluded that the traveler, traveler could stay a few days and he was going to feed him. So let me tell you what he did. The rich man had great herds, had great money, great wealth. He had all this flock. He had all this stuff. But the poor man over here was kind of a broke dude. He had his family. They had gone out and purchased this little lamb. They had fed this little lamb. This little lamb became part of their family. It was their pet. They loved this little lamb. But this rich man, instead of going out into his pasture and killing something and providing it, he went over to that poor man's little house and grabbed that poor man's little lamb and he killed it and he gave it to the traveler. Listen to the text. Listen to the text. Verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly. Are you serious? There is a poor little dude that don't have anything. And this rich guy, David's anger burns greatly. Here's the point. You raped the girl. You killed her husband, and you're going to be mad at a dude who killed an animal? It is so easy for us in our righteous indignation to get mad at other people's sin and never take time to lift a mirror. I read that, and I'm like, David, seriously? So he burns with anger. And I tell you what should happen. The man that did this should have to pay four times restitution back. This man deserves to die. That's what the text said. That's what he said. It's not what he meant. There is no Psalm 51 if David meant what he said. What do you mean? That man deserves to die. Then David, why didn't you ask Nathan to gather the other prophets and stone you to death on the spot if you really meant it? It sounds good on paper, but he was pronouncing his own sentence. You ever do that? You ever hear stories? Let me tell you what ought to happen to that guy. I hope that guy busts hell wide open. Do you really? Because really, we pronounce a sentence on ourselves based on our own rebellion before God. I don't want to see anybody bust hell wide open. I don't even want to see anybody slide barely into hell. That's what I deserve. Then Nathan looks at David and says, David, do you realize you are the man? This story is all about you. It's all about what you've done. God gave Nathan this prophetic revelation of what had gone down. And he goes, it's you. Thus says the Lord, David. I anointed you king over Israel. You little redneck shepherd dude, let me tell you. Who found you? Who put you in leadership? Who anointed you, David? I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you the courage to defeat 
Goliath. David, do you not realize everything that you've accomplished has been because of me and not because of you? And then he says, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And then David makes this statement. Man, my behavior was bad. No, sir. Man, I need to change the way I act. No, sir. If I could just associate with better people. No, sir. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have. I made the compromise. I made the choice. I willfully walked away from God. I did it. I did it. Do you know when true, authentic change and transformation happens is when we own our junk. The greatest disinfectant for sin is getting into the light of God's truth. The greatest disinfectant. You want to clean yourself up, get into the light. Who'd you sin against? God. Why? Because I became fascinated, assassinated, dominated, devastated. All right, come on. I told you this is contemplation and confrontation of the soul. Because all of us struggle and God is wanting us to know. I love you. I've been chasing you. I made you in my image. I redeemed you with my blood. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I want you to know me. David Tripp. Paul David Tripp is a guy I've been reading. Trevor and I are reading his devotional. I would encourage you to write this down if you're looking for a good read. It's 51 writings contemplating Psalm 51 called Whiter Than Snow by Paul David Tripp. Phenomenal. But listen to what he said. He said, our lives are not a series of big dramatic moments. We don't bounce from big decision to big decision. We live in an ongoing series of little moments. The character of our life isn't marked by 10 big moments. The character of our life is established by these 10,000 little moments of everyday life. The themes and struggles that emerge from those little moments reveal what's truly going on inside of our hearts. Choices and decisions, it's not these big 10 that we're going to look back over our life and go, those were 10 of the, no, no, no. we're going to look back over the 10,000 little moments of where we established that we would follow God, we would establish that we would live in truth, we would establish that we would submit to the Lordship of Jesus so that those big moments is just another little moment of obedience before God. Then, then it happened. How'd you mess it up? People will say this, Tim, this brother fell into sin. Say what? The, the, the brother fell into sin. Stop it. He didn't fall into sin. He slowly compromised. In that little moment, and compromised in that next little moment, and he negotiated with God, and he thought that it doesn't apply to me. I'll never get caught. I can do this. I'm the man. It didn't just happen. It was all of this compromise that built 
up to it. I, I want to give you five things that's in your bulletin. But I, I really believe that our authentic repentance and transformation can happen for all of us. But these first three D words that I'm going to share with you here are absolutely essential. I don't know exactly if they're in order, but the order has to happen. All, all three, the order of the three has to happen. What, what are you saying? In order for true, authentic confession and repentance to take place, you have to reach a place in your life where you're disgusted with self. If you're not sick of being sick and sick of your own maneuvering and ways, and if your schemes and mechanisms you're using, if you haven't tapped out that you're there, you're not going to move. So there has to be a disgust with self. Why do you see people continue to live in habitual sin? They're not disgusted. I, I had a dude that was in our Bible study here in Atlanta for years, for years. He was my buddy. Again, call him Joe. But this guy, again, he and an old high school flame friended each other on Facebook. They end up having some dialogue. He goes back to the state he's from for his 25th high school reunion. He goes back. He's been married to this girl that he's been married to now for like 20 years. Even longer. Maybe it was 35, whatever it was. He'd been married years and he comes back and says, I'm leaving my wife. And I said, why? Because I'm happy and I've been tired of this one and I'm moving on. But you made shirts up for our guys in the Bible study that you wrote, real men love Jesus. And on the back, you wrote the stuff about confronting sin and obeying God. I don't care. He wasn't disgusted with himself. You, you, you see people run back to the bottle. Why did you pick it up again? Because I wasn't disgusted enough with it. I wasn't that sick. I had some guilt and shame, but I, I, I wasn't sick that I, I'm there. Same thing. So disgust with self. Then there has to be this desperate desire to know God on God's terms. It's like this desperation. That's David. That's where he's crying out. I'm desperate to know you walk with you, involve myself with you. And then the third thing is there has to be a disclosure of the hidden secrets and the sin in your life. Amen. If you don't itemize and confess and disclose this, well, I did it before the Lord, but I don't want anybody else to know. It's good to have a few confidants that you can walk with through your mess. But people go, no, if these three don't happen, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, these next two will not happen. That's the reason so many people can come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. If these three don't happen, these next two do not happen. One, submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When do you submit to the Lordship of Jesus? When you have become disgusted with sin, a desperation to know God, a disclosure of the deeper secrets, when that happens, you'll see a person submit to the lordship of Jesus. And then when that happens, you'll see people subject themselves to others in the body of Christ. 
I become accountable to other people, and I walk with other people, and I do life with other people because I've submitted based on disgust, desperation, and disclosure. Now I can walk and do life with others. Here's the problem. As fallen human beings, each and every one of us, and it's in your notes, if we're not careful, we're going to fall into the, the two great lies that's been presented from the, even from the Garden of Eden when Satan comes with his ammo. And because deep down inside, if we really are not desiring God and we still want to live for ourselves, we're going to battle these two lies. The lie of autonomy. The lie of autonomy says, I am an independent human being and I can live my life ever how I want. Woo! The narcissism in that statement right there is absolutely paralyzing. When people say, who are you to tell me how to live? Here's the secret to life. The secret to life is your life doesn't belong to you. It's a gift from God. The very essence of my breath belongs to the one who created me and breathed into me the breath of life. My life is not my own. So the lie of autonomy says I can live it however I want to. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. And then the lie of self-sufficiency. You see, Tim, everything that I need to be and everything that I'm supposed to do, I've got the resources within me. Thus, you see the New Age movement with the Oprahism and all this other junk being promoted that you've got to get in tune with the inner you. Well, I got in tune with the inner me back in October of 85, and I realized the inner me was sinful, diseased, corrupt, immoral, and an adulterous, and a stinking drunk. I'm glad I got in tune with me. Because when I got in tune with me, I realized I was insufficient, inferior, inadequate, and I needed a savior. I'm telling you, The lie of autonomy and the lie of self-sufficiency doesn't carry weight because we need to be born again. So how does authentic confession, what does it look like? I just wrote a few things down in closing. When I move to this place of authentic repentance, authentic repentance, repentance means I'm turning from the sin, from the lies, I'm unplugging from the world out there to meet my needs and I'm plugging in only to Jesus I will address and I will confess sin completely I call it what it is I call it what God calls it that's sin that's willful rebellion that's disobedience that's missing the mark you know even the scripture says the person who knows the right thing to do and don't do it he's sinning when I know the right thing and I'm like ah I'm sinning second thing is Authentic repentance is when I rely on God's mercy and God's mercy alone to make me right. The only thing I've got going for me is the grace and mercy of God. You remove those two components from my life and I am stuck like Chuck. I'm lost. It's his compassion and kindness. It's his undeserved favor. It's him reaching into the ruins of darkness and rescuing somebody like me. I look at it and go, That's my only defense that I have before the king is your mercy. Third thing is this. You will admit that punishment is deserved. 
That's what David does in Psalm 51 when we get there. I deserve to be punished. In this entitlement generation, can I tell you something? Every person who is born onto this dirt planet, they deserve one thing. Death and eternal separation from God. Minus the love of God. Minus the grace of God. Minus him pursuing you. What do I deserve? Well, I deserve better than this. You do? I don't. I'm broken. I'm telling you right now, I deserve utter destruction. And by the grace of God, I can sit here today as your brother and say, I love you. God's for you. This ain't to beat you up, guilt you, and shame you, but it's to say, let's quit living in this sin stuff. And let's get right with God. Fourth thing would be this. When you're truly broken and you repent, you start to understand and then you start to go around and clean up the collateral damage that you've created. People that say, well, God saved me. Well, look at all this mess you've created. Well, I'm not going to deal with that. It belongs to me. I got to clean it up. If it belongs to me, I got to clean it up. It's probably my 20th high school reunion. I'll never forget. God goes, if you see, you've got to go to her. Or you've got to apologize and you need to repent. You crushed that girl. I'm like, so we get to my 20th reunion. Barb and I are hanging out. 30 minutes go by and her husband and her walk up. And God goes, I'm like, Mm. he's like, man, I'm going to get something to drink. I'm like, Barb's like, I'm sorry, I've got to use the bathroom so bad. And the Lord said, tell her. Tell her what a punk you were. Tell her what a coward you were. And I called her name and I said, I crushed you. I crushed you. I hurt you big time. It wasn't you. It was me. I I brought a lot of pain in your life, and I know it. And I said, I am so, so sorry. I did it. And she's got tears flowing down her face. I did it. And I said, I just want you to know I'm sorry. And if you've got it in you to forgive me, I I would really appreciate that. She goes, I know you've come to faith in Jesus, Tim. Shortly after that, I came to faith in Jesus. And I want you to know about 19 years ago, I forgave you. I said, I'm so sorry. God goes, that's collateral damage. That's unresolved stuff in your story. And he's pointed it out in other areas of me. Go make it right. Okay. Why? Because true, authentic repentance deals with the collateral damage that it's created God looks at David and says, I wanted to bless you a lot more. But now the sword will never depart from your house. David, it's going to be a lot of chaos. And what you did in secret, it's going to be known in public. David repented. David was restored. David became a man after God's own heart. David does write Psalm 51. And David writes a ton of the other Psalms we read out of brokenness and contrition and humility Because God restores the sinner. 
But we have to confront the sin. We have to bring it before him. And we have to violently repent. Thank <laughs> you.